calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Hello and welcome to this episode of Take 15. I'm Lauren Foster, Content Director at CFA Institute. Joining me today is Michael Kitkes. Michael is a partner and director of research at Pinnacle Advisory Group, which oversees about a billion dollars of current assets. He's also publisher of the e-newsletter, The Kitkes Report, and the blog, Nerd's Eye View. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, uh, thanks for being here today. Great to be here. Uh, let's start with the state of the US economy. Uh, we have this looming fiscal cliff and the potential for tax rates to rise significantly in the future. What are you doing to plan around that? So our, our fiscal cliff environment and this prospective risk of rising tax rates in the future really takes a lot of traditional tax planning and sort of turns it upside mm -hmm. down. So our, our traditional tax planning world that most of us are pretty familiar with is I take every deduction now as quickly as I can because I don't want to pay any taxes unless I have to. And I take all the income and I defer it as far out to the future as I can because I don't want to pay any taxes any sooner than mm -hmm. I need to, that sort of time value of money. What we see in a rising tax rate environment, though, is that the optimal strategy becomes the exact reverse. The right. ideal, then, is to accelerate the income, pay it, actually pay your taxes as quickly as possible because you're paying them at lower right. rates, and defer your deductions to the future because ultimately a deduction is worth the tax rate against which it applies. The higher the tax rates, the more economic value to the deduction. And what we see when we start to do the math is that the magnitude of tax rates that we're looking at in terms of increases mm -hmm. really quickly begins to overwhelm the time value of money of just delaying for tax mm -hmm. deferral. So that's leading to all sorts of new strategies and approaches, everything from increasing the value of Roth conversions, let's get the IRA dollars taxed while the right. rates are low, to taking traditional strategies like tax loss harvesting mm -hmm. and actually turning it around where now the optimal strategy is tax gain harvesting, mm -hmm. actually sell the position, recognize right. the capital gains, pay it now because you're paying it at current rates, keep your losses for the future because those are losses against higher rates. So mm -hmm. really sort of the, the, the total 180 reversal of right. traditional tax planning. So taxes are top of mind for many clients and their advisors. So is retirement. Um, is the 4% rule still an applicable rule of thumb? Good question. We've seen a lot of research around the sort of the so-called 4% rule, safe right. withdrawal rates, the idea being how what, what spending level can we set ourselves in a manner that will sustain for a 30-year retirement period or mm -hmm. other time periods if you want to adjust the numbers. Right. Uh, but we see a lot of sort of current concern and criticism, all this discussion, we're in a new normal, forward returns are going right. to be lower than average. Does that undermine all the safe withdrawal rate research? And what we find at this point is that, actually, no, it doesn't undermine it at all. If you really look at what's in the safe withdrawal rate research, it actually has very little to do with average returns. If we simply assume markets where you have average returns, the safe withdrawal rate is actually about 6.5%. 
The reason why we use this 4% number is because that's the number that's worked through the various, usually about 15 to 25 year economic catastrophes we inflict to our economy from time to time. So, uh, you know, through the 60s and 70s and the early 80s, the Great Depression, even the, uh, a credit crisis we had 100 years ago in the very early 1900s that led to the creation of the Fed. When we look at those kinds of environments, we see these horribly low return environments where balanced portfolios might get a real return of less than 1% for a decade and a half. Mm -hmm. Arguably, that is perhaps not that different from what we're looking at going right. forward from here. But we've seen very little say we're getting worse. There's not much to suggest that a balanced portfolio of stocks and bonds is going to generate a real return less than 1% for 15 years from here. And if we merely produce results around that level, what we end up with is we're actually right back at the 4% safe withdrawal rate. Okay. I guess speaking of portfolios, there's an emerging trend uh, to be more tactical with asset allocation. Um, is this market timing or something else? You know, I don't characterize a lot of what we're seeing emerging around tactical asset allocation as market timing. I, I think it's sort of something fundamentally different. Mm -hmm. If you go all the way back to the roots of Markowitz and modern portfolio theory, uh, you, you can even get uh, the original paper now, Portfolio yeah. Selection from 1952. It's available on the web. Mm -hmm. If you look at what Markowitz wrote, he basically said, you create portfolios in two stages. Mm -hmm. Stage one, figure out what you think is going to happen to markets. Right. What's the expected returns? What kind of volatility we see? What are the correlations going to be? Mm -hmm. Step two, figure out how to jumble all that together to actually allocate a portfolio. The goal of modern portfolio theory was to tell you how to do step two. Mm -hmm. You come to the table with some expectations of our return and volatility, mm -hmm. we'll tell you how to mix together a portfolio. Mm -hmm. Never really actually said how you're supposed to come up with those inputs right. though. What we see, and what you actually see if you go back to the original Markowitz is, we sort of went down a strange direction over the past couple of decades in assuming that the best input to that model is to take a long-term 100-year average. Mm -hmm. In fact, if you look at the original paper, even Markowitz said, don't use long-term historical averages. Better methods which take into account more information can be found. Mm -hmm. What then emerges is the moment you acknowledge that markets are a little bit more dynamic, that expected returns change, that expected volatility changes, that there are high and low return environments and high and low risk environments, and that mm -hmm. correlations change depending on which of those environments you're in. As you begin to adjust those inputs, the, the actual natural outcome is that your asset allocation become more dynamic as well. Right. That, that's simply sort of the natural response. You, as sort of any rational human being, you probably wouldn't hail the same portfolio if bonds yielded 10 that right. you do when bonds yield 2. Mm -hmm. So if you simply look at those inputs in a little bit more of a real-time environment, say, well, what's going on with markets? How are investments valued? Mm -hmm. The natural outcome is asset allocation should probably be a little bit more tactical and dynamic okay. to reflect the environment. There's been a, an explosion of alternative asset classes. What is an alternative asset? So I, you know, I've had a lot of trouble with sort of our, our explosion of yeah. alternative asset classes. I, I think we're starting to get in some danger now of, of classifying some things I'm not really sure fairly would be uh, considered an alternative asset yeah. class. At the most basic level to me, an, a, a, an alternative asset class is, some, is an investment that has fundamental economic characteristics mm -hmm. that will drive its risk and return patterns that are in some way, shape, or form different from the inputs that affect other asset classes. 
So that's kind of what drives uh, uh, the definition of an, of an asset class. Bonds certainly react differently to various economic environments than stocks do, so we separate them. Real estate generally functions differently than stocks or bonds, although it has some similarities. Commodities tend to react to economic environments a little bit differently. So we can get some pillars okay. that I think work well. The problem I think that we've had recently from there is we're starting to classify the very action of being an active manager as an alternative asset class. And that's where I worry a little bit about what we're doing. You know, the fact that I can both be long in stocks and short in stocks does not make me an alternative asset class. Mm -hmm. It simply means I'm a manager who makes decisions about going long and short, and hopefully I will make more good decisions than bad decisions and add value. And so I think we have to be really careful as we're looking and considering alternative asset classes, even what is an alternative mm -hmm. asset class, to really make a distinction between what is genuinely a different asset class with unique e economic characteristics right. of its own, and what, for better or for worse, is manager alpha. Okay. You can certainly shoot for manager alpha. That's a reasonable way to try to add to the value of a portfolio, but that's different than an asset class that reacts differently to economic fundamentals. Right. Michael, thanks for sharing your insights today and thank you for watching. Copyright 2012 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.